Welcome to Inside Economics. I'm Mark Sandy, the Chief Economist of Moody's Analytics, and I'm joined by my two colleagues and co-hosts, uh, Chris Dorides. Hi, Chris. Hey, Mark. How are you? Good. You made your way back from Toronto, I see. I did. You too. We had a couple. Uh, Chris and I, uh, were, oh, and of course, Ryan. Ryan Sweet. How can I not introduce you right up front, Ryan, uh, Director of Real-Time Economics? How are you? Good. So how was Toronto? What do you think, Chris? Was, was we had, it was great. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, the uh, client met, dinners in in Toronto and Chicago. Yeah, it was great to see them again. This was our first foray back on the road since uh, start of the pandemic. Right, we haven't done our own conferences or had these types of dinners since then. So it was uh, was really really great to be back out there and hear uh, the opinions of a lot of different uh, folks around the table. And we got good feedback on the podcast, right? I thought. Um, we did. Lots of fans. Like lots yeah. of fans. We got a lot of people listening to this. Did you guys have a hot dog when you were in Chicago? Hot dog. Uh, Tell me, you can't go to Chicago and not get a hot dog. Really? Where, where do you get hot dogs? Oh, gosh. Everywhere? The They're everywhere. Oh. <laughs> no. No. I did, did you see any hot dogs? I did. I, in Toronto, I did have a Tim Horton. Is it Tim Horton? I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Donut. Yeah. For the first time ever. And... Uh, I'll have to say I, I paid a price for eating the donut. <laughs> so, <laughs> Apparently you got the wrong one. I got, got the wrong donut. Yeah, I got all kinds of advice on what kind of donuts I should eat. But uh, anyway, that, so I got to keep that in mind about hot dogs. I didn't know Chicago was known for hot dogs. But uh, Pizza. Did you have at least a slice a pizza. of pizza? Oh, no, 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 no. Chicago pizza? Come on. It's, it's delicious. It's not right. It's not right. <laughs> you could spend a whole podcast debating this. <laughs> Well, anyway, it was good. To, it was really good to be uh, out there uh, uh, with folks and, um, you know, in person for the first time in almost three years. So that's pretty amazing. Yeah. yeah. Good. Um, well, uh, and we have a guest, Doug, Doug Holtz Egan. Doug, uh, good to have you. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Yeah. So I get yeah. a free hot dog for doing this. It's exciting. No bottle of wine. You know, Moody's, Can't there's a Moody's. Up. There's a cap on how how good a bottle of wine we can give you. Uh, hopefully, it's reasonably passable. But uh, yeah, well, I don't would you prefer a hot dog? Would you prefer? And and Doug and I, you know, we've been crossing paths for many many years now. Uh, yeah. do, Doug, you know, uh, we, we obviously got to know each other when you ran the uh, McCain campaign, the uh, the economic side of the McCain campaign. And you asked me to help uh, uh, participate, and that was one of the best experiences. Uh, just being involved in all that was just fabulous. But how did we? Did we know each other before? I can't even. I don't. Can't remember. I believe how. that we met when I was at the Congressional Budget Office. I think I asked you for some advice on a housing question or something. Uh, okay. Okay, and of course. You were the director of the CBO, the Congressional Budget Office, back uh, in the OOs, I believe. Two thousand three to two thousand five. So. Yeah, that so that those were years. What kind of legislation were you focused on at CBO at that time? Was that I can't um, quite remember. That was uh, during the passage of the Medicare Modernization Act that gave us the mm. prescription drug program. Um, it was also the Iraq War. I testified more on Iraq troop rotations than almost anything, believe it or mm. not. Oh, that's interesting. Well, that that was when Larry Lindsay kind of got in trouble, didn't he? A little bit, yeah. You know, 
got fired. Because <laughs> <Got> fired. <laughs> yeah. he was he was chair of the Council of Economic Advisors. And no, he was, he was director of the National Economic Council. Oh, okay. Hubbard was chair of the CEA. And I worked for Glenn as the chief economist, 2001, 2002, then went to CDO. And then uh, after a year's hiatus, went to the McCain campaign. Right, right. And, uh, oh, I didn't realize you were the chief economist of, this, of the CEA under Glenn Hubbard. Oh, okay, yes. cool. So I was, and, and that was controversial because I was the first CBO director to go directly from the White House to the CDO. And since that's a nonpartisan position by mm. statute, there were people who believed that I couldn't uh, do the job properly just because I was coming from a, a you know, a Bush White House. But um, I assured them that my job at the White House was to organize the staff to deliver our best economic advice to our political superiors who then ignored us. And I asked them, <laughs> organize the CBO to deliver our best budgetary and economic advice. Would they ignore me? And they just laughed and they said, you got the job. So. <laughs> <laughs> that all, uh, that's great. That all worked out. Yeah. Well, and that, that, that's obviously what we're going to talk about here a little later in the podcast is about fiscal policy, because a lot of stuff to talk about, a lot of pieces of legislation and executive orders and everything else under the uh, Biden administration, this Congress. And I'd love to get uh, your take on all of that. Uh, and I know you do that today in your work at the American Action Forum, and that's where you yes. are today. This is, a, this is a, is it fair to say a think tank? And it's a yes. think tank that you founded. I, I, I founded this in, uh, uh, opened up January 1st, 2010. And um, it's not your typical think tank. Your typical DC think tank is full of deep subject matter experts who uh, close their door, think deep thoughts, write books, Periodically, the world in, uh, collides with them and their relevance, and then they go <laughs> their office for a couple of years. Um, that sounds like Ryan somehow, <laughs> right, Chris? <laughs> <There we go. laughs> no, it's already started. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so I, you know, as I said, I, I worked at the CEA, a CBO, McCain campaign, pulse, ran the, the policy shop on the campaign, and what I realized at the end of, the, of those experiences was that. Um, in those jobs, you did uh, policy research, education, options, advice, but you did it in a very particular way, which is, um, number one, you worked on whatever was happening that day. You, you didn't have the luxury of saying, you know, I, I do turtle migration when that comes up, let me know. You know, you work on whatever's happening. Um, uh, you had to um, deliver what you, whatever you were uh, preparing, your research, your product uh, in English to non-specialists. So there was a real premium on the communication function. And um, lastly, you had to know the political lay of the land. When you work in a White House, it's all about the president's agenda. Everything else is the enemy. Doesn't matter who's actually running Congress, mm -hmm. they're the enemy. Mm -hmm. uh, at CBO, it was by law nonpartisan, so I had to be very careful to, not to have like, any bias. Obviously, on the campaign, you're trying to make good policy, good politics, which, which is the challenge. And I realized that I liked that work. Um, and so I, it didn't seem to me there was any reason why that was unique to government. Like, there must be people out there who, are what center-right conservatives like I am, and um, uh, you know something happens, an oil rig blows up in the Gulf. They they want to know from their perspective, how do I think about this? And um, you know they don't sit and read white papers in advance. That something happens, they want to know about it. So that's what we do. We try to to deliver the the waterfront of domestic and economic policy issues um, on whatever's happening in the Congress and the agencies. That, that that's the the mission of AAF. And I, I notice you you write every day, right? That, I write our morning email every day. Yeah, um, that must be tough. 
That, no, that's just therapy. I'm really I'm, therapy. Okay. I'm, it's like jogging or eating breakfast. There are probably healthier therapies. This one's mine. You know, I, right. I have a burn it down rate <laughs> that begins when I wake up and you know, th- this helps me with it. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I, I will say you certainly helped my career. I, I would say, because when you brought me into the McCain uh, campaign, because I'm center left, you're, you're, you would be center right, yeah. center left. And of course, it didn't, you weren't asking me to opine about a lot about policy, although you did, you did ask a few things that I really appreciate, but it was mostly about the economics, you know, what was going on, which actually turned out to be quite important, didn't it? Uh, uh, yeah, I mean, you know, we had the first $100 uh, oil prices back then, we had the financial yeah. crisis, you know, onset of the Great Recession, you know, it was a, an ideal time to be on a presidential campaign, you know, things went just right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. Well, of course, everyone, we're talking about the financial crisis. This is the start of the financial crisis when this campaign was going on. Hey, in that regard, and I don't know if this is an unfair question, but I, I'll ask it anyway. Is there, looking back on the compa- campaign and how it responded to events, you know, the unfolding crisis, the financial crisis, would you have done anything different now in hindsight? You know, oh, yeah. Looking, you yeah, you would I mean, have. Yeah. In in terms of the the sort of the intersection of the policy and the politics, um, there are two things that really stand out to me. Number one, uh, as an accident of the history, um, you know, I I went on the King campaign January 1, 2007. Uh, There were 100 people, and he was the presumptive nominee at that point in time. And with the collective geniuses we had at the headquarters, we took him from uh, first to dead last and bankrupt by by July 2007. (laughs) Really an outstanding performance. And, um, oh boy. And, and at that point, uh, I worked for free from July to March, uh, 2008. And it was a, just a skeleton staff. Uh, and, and McCain put the, the whole thing on his back and got himself back in. And, and you know, it's, it's all him. Um, but during that period, he just said, you know, have some plans, be bold. And so, for example, I, I had a, a healthcare reform that featured, a, eliminating the exclusion from tax of employer-sponsored insurance and mm. providing a universal refundable tax credit for families and individuals uh, that looks a lot like, you know, the premium tax credits in the, in the ACA exchanges, but, but the it was a Care Act. reform. And when he got the nomination, the political guys who came on board looked at it and said, you got to be kidding. Me. We can't, we're going to get killed. And we did, we got killed. Mm. Um, the, Obama ran um, uh, an ad that showed uh, a, a ball of string un, unraveling and talked about how McCain for the first time would tax your health care. And uh, that's the single most run political ad ever still. Is that and, right? Yeah, wow. just crushed us. So that was probably a mistake. Um, I, was, I, I didn't know anything about politics. It was very naive. I, and so I did this and it was just, it was very specific and it was very controversial. And, and that was great when he wanted attention and it was really bad as, 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 the, as the candidate, the nominee. Second thing is in responding to crises, yeah. we're trying to solve problems. My instinct is, you know, you know, GSEs are going down. Uh, you know, let's let's solve the problem. Let's figure out what we're going to do. Um, the Obama campaign's response to to the same events was to fly to Miami and invite all the former uh, 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 Treasury secretaries who were Democrats down to brief uh, Obama, and they and he walked out and said. It's, it's really bad, and I'm, I'm worried about the American people. I just got a great briefing so that we understand this better. And that's all he did. Mm. They, they didn't try to solve it. Mm, and interesting. I, that, was, that was smarter, right? I mean, 
That's interesting. Appear that you care, appear that you're smart about it, that you'll be capable of dealing with it, but don't suggest anything because yeah. it's hard. And in real time, when you had no data, it's the fog of war thing. Like we made a lot of mistakes. Yeah, that's fascinating. That's fascinating. So, um, I would I would do it differently if I did it again. I'm never going to do it again. So <laughs> there, there, there you go. Yeah, I, yeah, and and of course I did not get paid. Just so everyone knows, I I was not a, a paid. No, no. So yeah. everyone knows yeah. what Mark did is he was one of three people who got on the phone with me every morning, and you know whatever data had come out that day told me how to think about it, how to tell McCain to talk about it, and since since it was a, an extraordinarily um, difficult period economically, it was a, a huge service to me. I mean, it was really valuable. Yeah, and I remember some calls. It was so cool. You know, you had Marty Feldstein, you had Ken Rogoff. Uh, I can't remember. Just uh, uh, of course, Glenn Hubbard. You mentioned Larry Lindsay. Yeah, kind of a really cool group. So I don't know who I'm, I'm more grateful to, uh, and, and and I mean this sincerely. People like you, who every day helped out for nothing. That's an extraordinary service. I mean, you know, all you can do is say thank you. It was it was fantastic, or the people who I called out of the blue with no uh, reason for them to expect the call and say, I need 10 pages on what to do with oil price shocks for the candidate tomorrow. Cool. And they yeah. do. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty I mean, amazing. It, it's it's the beauty it's, of the American system, really. It, you know? It, yeah. 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 People are committed anyway. But I will tell you, um, you know, I was 50 then. It was part of my mid midlife crisis to go on the campaign. And, um, uh, you know, everyone else on campaigns is like 20 something. And, and I, there's a reason for that. It was yeah. the most exhausting thing I've ever done. Well, let I me just that, say, I'm sorry, go ahead. Two, two, two weeks out from the election thinking, I'm not going to make it. I mean, I don't know how I'm going to die, but I'm definitely not going to make it. <laughs> <laughs> well, let me just say, let me just say, you still look 50. Uh, it must be that therapy you write every morning. I don't know. Uh, it's working for you. But thank you for coming on. And we'll... We're going to come back to fiscal policy. We do want to talk a little bit about the economy because yep. uh, I know you're a careful uh, observer of that as well. But uh, let me bring in back in uh, Ryan and Chris. And uh, Ryan, let me let me turn to you. Uh, any uh, of the this is kind of a light week on the data side, but uh, any of the and I, we are going to come back and play the statistics game. So I don't want you to give away any statistics. But given all the raft of information that came out, you know, there's a lot of meetings of central banks, ECB, so forth and so on. Bank of Canada was when we were in Toronto that day. I think the Bank of Canada yep. raised their target rate by 75 basis points. Anything that kind of strikes you about the data and what it means for the economy's performance outlook? Anything you want to call to our attention? It was really light. Like there was very few indicators. I mean, ISM non-manufacturing survey came out and that unexpectedly increased, which is a good sign. So um, jobless claims remain really low. So, I mean, the labor market just overall is very, very strong. Uh, I think the one thing the all the attention's on the Fed and what they're going to do, and it seems like for central banks, 75 is the new 25. And you already got the leak in the Wall Street Journal. So the Fed's going 75 next uh, in a couple of weeks. Yeah, we're going to have to change our forecast. I think we had 50, didn't we? Or we were contemplating we 75. We were yeah. debating, we we're going to wait till the CPI next week, which should be good. <clears throat> right. You should see a decline in the CPI next week. But it's not going to alter no. their, their view. They're not going to declare victory on just two months of improving inflation. So I think, yeah, we're going to have to change our forecast. Well, I guess when UI claims are 222,000, that means effectively no layoffs, which means job markets mm -hmm. roaring, which means I, I got to slow things down pretty fast. Yeah. I mean, it wasn't, there's not a lot, of, there's not 
any numbers in it, but the Fed's beige book came out. And if you read all the anecdotes, mm-hmm. businesses are going to keep hiring because they know how difficult it is to fill open positions and that they have this backlog of work to do and they need to fill uh, put you know seats, uh, people in seats. So the idea that the Fed's going to be able to cool labor demand quickly, I think is kind of a challenge for them. Yeah. That's a real test. Hey, Chris, anything you want to bring up? I mean, the one thing that struck me about our dinner with clients in Toronto was the Canadian job market's even tighter than the U.S. job market. I mean, yeah. they're, they're, they were the stories they were telling about labor, uh, you know, their workers and wage demands and remote work. It was pretty, pretty interesting, I thought. It was. It was. And I think many of them were secret, secretly hoping for a little bit of a recession just to restore some normality here. Um, it sounds pretty unsustainable what's going on there. Um, but yeah, I, I agree with Ryan in terms of uh, 75 basis point. I mean, every central bank seems to be um, adopting this as the, uh, as the standard uh, tool at this point. So I got to buckle in because uh, the tightening cycle certainly is here to stay for a while. Yeah. Yeah, the thing that we looked at this week was the uh, economic surprise index, which kind of measures how the actual data performs relative to expectations. And is that our index or whose index is that? Citigroup. City. So there's city. A oh, city. Right. has one. City yeah. has an economic surprise, uh, and they're rising. So, you know, for the most part, the data is coming in a little bit better than what you know the consensus was expecting. Yeah. Okay. Hey Doug, so what's your what's your sense of things? Um, I, I mean, one way to one question I might ask is. Do you think we're in recession? No. I mean, no, right. I mean, okay. I, I don't know what the first quarter was, but if you looked inside the sort of anomalous net export and the inventory moves, domestic uh, demand is very solid in, in the first quarter. So second quarter weakened more than I expected. Um, so that, that did concern me a bit, but it appears that, that that's behind us. So we had, we had a, a slow quarter in the second quarter. Third quarter looks to be something like between one and one and a half. And um, that's about what I expect for the second half of the year. So no, no, we're not in a recession. And certainly if you take seriously the definition of a sustained and, and broad decline in economic activity, you can't make that case at all. Um, the of course, that's the National Bureau of Economic Research yeah. definition, yeah, that's, right? That's mm-hmm. the gold standard. So, um, you know, everyone gets all excited by um, every monthly labor report, but you know, I now just look at two things. I look at uh, the growth rate and aggregate payrolls, sort of as a proxy for uh, labor demand, right? and look at uh, the labor force growth and labor force participation as a proxy for supply. And uh, if you, you look at year-over-year growth rates of those things, demand's been way above supply for a long time and remains way above supply, and there is no evidence for cooling, really, at all. So the, the idea that the Fed is going to look at this top line that was driven largely by gasoline prices and this, and declare victory is insane. Mm-hmm. And all the easy money addicts on Wall down on in New York who keep saying it's time for them to quit, better get over it. I mean, I, I thought I thought that's Powell is now twice just basically said, "Wake up, freight train coming, stop." <laughs> um, you know, yeah, I, I admire him. I mean, he's just like, "Look, yeah. <laughs> couldn't say it more plainly." Please. Um, yeah, he's having more and more Volker moments. Well, he, he what's the name of Volker's book? Oh, I don't know. Keeping mm. at it, the the search for sound monetary policy. Uh, I'll keep saying we're going to keep at it. 
Yep. Oh, is that? I never mm-hmm. connected those dots. Okay. It's a full scale, you know, put on the Volker suit and go. <laughs> Pal just needs the cigar. Yeah. <laughs> that I can't imagine, but no. Yeah. No, I don't see that. But, but you know, so I think I've thought 75 was a lock for a while. I really have. Um, and, and we, you know, he has basically said it is worse to do too much too quickly. It is worse to, to, to pause than to do too much yeah. too quickly. So they're, they're, he, he did the whole Jackson Hole speech without uh, using the phrase soft landing. It's gone. He never used it anymore. Yeah. So, so it used to always say, well, we're going to try to engineer a soft landing. He stopped saying that. When you say aggregate perils, do you mean simply payroll employment, the growth in payroll employment? Oh, payrolls. Uh, there's an index in the in the in the report. There's an index of aggregate uh, payrolls, which oh, is okay people hours and okay earnings. So that tells you sort of they can be operating on a lot of dimensions, but it's demand for labor, like getting more more bodies, more hours, more pay for them, whatever it might be. Got it. So so I, that, what that, what that, is that, that actually that, called in the report? It's the index of uh, of, of aggregate weekly payrolls. I think is oh okay okay, and well, that's that. and and. If you looked at that, like the early part of this year, that was going up at like 12% annual rates. It's just red hot. Now, right. it's down into single digits now. That And it was 3.4 in the last report. So it, it, there's some cooling there. That's good. That's year over year, 3.4? 3.4 was just the annual rate for that month. But oh, that month. Okay. Still. So we got some, a little bit of noise. Labor supply ticked up three tenths of a percent. Labor demand ticked down. It's one month of, of information. If you extrapolate it, you declare victory, but don't extrapolate it because we've seen this movie before. And it just goes right back. I, I, you know, it's so simple, but actually very in, intuitive and appealing. Just look at growth in labor force, growth in hours it, worked, essentially. Yeah. You have to interest people in the story without talking about the number of jobs created or the unemployment rate because yeah. I, don't, I don't pay attention to them anymore. Yeah. <laughs> Quite interesting. Well, uh, Okay, so the Fed's obviously on high alert and going to press. Do, do they? What do you think? Are they going to be able to pull this off without actually breaking the expansion and pushing us into recession? I was at a conference recently, a housing conference, and this really, really bright uh, eminent economist said that, that he guaranteed there wouldn't be a recession. Do you, do you know that guy? Guaranteed. That was you. No, no, no. I, I don't guarantee anything. <laughs> I don't, I don't, I don't. Oh, did I guarantee that at that conference? Did. Oh, boy. Oh. <laughs> what, this is what happens when I get in the heat of the moment kind of thing. Oh, I forgot about and that. That was a bipartisan said, policy. Uh, yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah. Commission. Policy. Yeah. Guaranteed. I probably said, Mark, I'm, I'm, I don't think we're in a recession. And I'm, I'm optimistic like Mark is, but I'm not going to guarantee anything. <laughs> uh, I, I, said, I think there's a good chance early next year that we see a, a, a downturn. I, I do. Yeah. Better than fifty. Right. It's just gonna there's just you're you're thinking is the Fred the Fed can't thread this needle. They've so got a slow growth to quell inflation, slow job growth to quell wage growth and inflation. Yep. And they it, to, to do that, they're just gonna have to step so hard on interest rates in the economy that something's gonna break somewhere. It, it, you know, as we know, it, it operates with long and variable lags. Yeah. And they're more interested in getting inflation under control. And, and the way they're doing that now, remember, is they're looking at actual inflation. So that this backward looking approach where you look at actual inflation, make sure it's come down to, to the, an acceptable level for 
a couple of reports, right? They're not going to just do it on one. That almost guarantees that by the time you get to, to the full impact of the policy, you've overdone it. Mm-hmm. And they're going to overdo it. It's pretty tough not to, I guess. Um, what was I going to say? Um, oh, uh, I think this might be a good place. We usually just uh, talk about probabilities of recession at the end. But since we're here in this part of the conversation, let's I, just to get a, a more concrete sense of that. What is Doug? What is your? What do you think the probability of recession? And hopefully, this is a fair question because this is kind of sure. the way people seem to think about it. What is the probability of recession over, let's say, the next twelve months, next eighteen months? What do you What do you think uh, between now and the end of twenty three? Seventy five percent. Oh, that high. I like him. Yeah, but you're down to sixty, I, I believe, Ryan. Oh, I'm back up. Oh, back up to sixty five. But Doug is influencing your thinking. I'm pretty no, sure. No, no, it was all it was all the Fed. They, I agree with them. They're going to overdo it. They're going to overdo it. So, what were you back up to? Sixty five. 65. Okay. So are you down to zero? Down to zero. <laughs> Guaranteed. 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 Oh, I, I, I don't know. I got to hear the tape recording of that. I, gen, I, I mean, I find it odd that I, I actually use those words, that word, guaranteed. I can't, that doesn't sound yeah. like Mark Zandy. Yeah. yeah really? You, okay. You okay. got all pumped up. I did. <laughs> did I really? Okay. Oh, uh, yeah. No, I'm, I'm surprised you never brought this up before. Mark. I'm at 45. I, I do want to ask one. Oh, and Chris, are you still at 60, right? I'm at 65, actually. Oh, you went up. I went up. After Canada, you listen to those Canadians, and you think, oh my gosh, we're Not going Not just in. Canada, but more international, definitely. I'm well, okay, well, what changed about China from and Europe? But. Last week to this week, you went from 60 to 65. What, what's behind that? Yeah, just... Uh, uh, I'm increasingly concerned about Europe and China. Oh, okay. Uh, so the international impacts, and I, you so, know, yeah, the U.S. is great, but uh, I, I don't know that we're immune. What are the rules? Am I allowed to ask a question? Yeah, fire Absolutely. away. Absolutely. Yeah. What's the probability that China is in a recession right now? Oh, excellent question. It is a good question. I, I don't. How do you define a recession for China? Yeah. Uh, like a growth recession. Well, it can't be Definitely can't be negative percent. GDP because that'll never yeah. happen. Yeah, but, yeah <laughs> no, I don't believe any of the numbers. So, like, yeah, oh, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, a broad-based slowdown of some sort. Yeah, I mean, it, it really seems like. Well, I'd say they were in a recession back a couple three months ago when they were on lockdown. That felt like a recession, right? Just GDP sixty-five cities again. I think they still yeah. are. Oh, are they? Oh, that's right. They're they lockdown. are starting lockdown again. Yeah, we'll see how that goes. Uh, it felt like they had come back a little bit though in the last few few months, maybe the last quarter. So I think Q two was kind of the really I, low point. I've been reduced to basically gauging the Chinese economy by global oil prices because they're the marginal demand. Great point. And when it goes down, they're you know that that's it. Yeah. Um, so I think I think they're really in in bad shape, and that's that's been the inflation relief we've gotten. Yeah, that's ironically, that's right. Right. You know, heartbeat. I mean, we're at $85 on a barrel of oil this morning, right? Because I think because of the concerns over China and Chinese demand, which actually is a, pl- a plus for us. So yeah. a big plus. Yeah. Um, okay. I mean, let me uh, throw out a, a quick logic for no recession, see what you think. I've been arguing that the consumer is going to hang tough, that they've, you know, there are lots of jobs, low unemployment, but more importantly, they've got a lot of uh, extra saving built up during the pandemic. 
uh, balance sheets are strong, low leverage. They've locked in the previously low interest rates through refinancing. Asset prices and stock prices and housing values are weakening here, but you know, still much wealthier than they were you know, three, five, 10 years ago. Does that resonate at all? Or is that just a reason why if we do have a suffer recession, it just might be less severe than it otherwise would be? Yeah, I think that's that, that's okay. logic. So I did an exercise. You know, I have to write something every day. So yeah, I, I end up, I end up like asking myself a question, and then I not knowing the answer. So I went back and I looked at all the previous business cycles post-war, and um, if you you know sort of date it from the from the peak and and start the downturn, and you look at um, components of of spending relative to, to their uh, value at the peak. Um, it's the business spending that turns down first in every recession except the most recent one. I think we're overly influenced by the pandemic recession, which is completely different than every other recession. It was, it was, you know, income went up, wealth went up, consumption went down because people couldn't go out and, and drink and go to shows and, and you know. So everyone's staring at the consumer. I, I'm staring at the business sector. Mm. Like when when they go down, it, that's when it ha- when it starts. And then the consumer comes after usually quarter or two later. Um, so that's worth worth keeping in mind, I think. That is interesting. Uh, and in Q2, I guess investment spending, fixed investment was negative, wasn't yeah. it? Yeah. 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 Uh, that, although that, it feels a lot stronger that, than that, the that durable one, goods. That one alarmed me. I mean, that's why that that, yeah. that that GDP work really did get my attention. Got it. Got it. And Ryan, it's stronger in Q3 though, right? Because the durable goods orders have been good, I think. Those, yeah, they've, been, they've been decent, but some yeah. leading indicators point towards some softening some in softening. core capital goods orders. So that's like the key component that feeds into GDP, and that's going to be weaker over the next couple of months. Although, if I look at shipments of non-defense capital goods X transportation, that's been pretty solid. Yes. And that's what yeah, drives that's equipment investment, right? Correct. Okay. Yeah. But interesting. That's an interesting point, though, Doug. I. I always look at through the prism of the consumer leading the train, driving the train. Most people looking at it, right? There's, yeah. this, this, there's been this obsession with the, the confidence index and what's going on there. And, um, you know, I, I, that's all interesting. But, you know, one thing I learned about this, this is a campaign lesson. Um, if you look at consumer sentiment, Michigan consumer sentiment, it, it's, it's driven a lot by partisan considerations. Yep. Right. The people whose party has the White House are way more optimistic than everyone else. Right. And, you know, so, and this is this unusual period because the Democrats have lost faith in the Biden administration. And so both of them are way down. And that's the only reason confidence is so low. Although it, Democrats are still a lot more optimistic or less pessimistic less than the Republicans. Yeah. I think Republican sentiment, I, correct me if I'm wrong, but in the U.S. surveys, the lowest they're, they're ever been. Pulse. I mean, yeah, they're, they're yeah, just... yeah, they're really pessimistic. Although with the declining gas prices, that might be turning a little bit. But this is a good time to play the game, the statistics okay. game. Um, and just to remind folks, uh, the game is we each come up with a statistic. The rest of us try to figure out what that is through clues and questions, deductive reasoning. The best statistic is one that it's not so easy. We get it you know, hands down, not too hard, uh, something that's apropos to a point you want to make or relevant to uh, the data. And uh, Doug, so you just get the hang of it. Let me let me go to uh, Ryan first, because he's the maven at this. He's really good at this. Uh, it, uh, so uh, Ryan, what's your statistic of the week? 179,111. Is it a job statistic? It is. Uh, is it, is it the increase in job openings in the jolts data? It is not. It should be. 
It should be. It, should be. <laughs> <laughs> it could be. It could be. It might it definitely be. Could it be. might be. It sounds plausible, actually. You know, we were at eleven million and it went up by that man if you got that doug you would have been you would have gotten all kinds of cowbells uh, uh. Yeah. that's pretty good was it is it in the uh employment report the uh no, that came out friday i'm sticking to the rules this employment week. came out at 8 30 on friday oh it's this week oh it's this, yeah, week. this week oh 179 000. 111 don't forget 111. that 111 uh we it claims uh is it it's claims oh it is claims it gotta is think, gotta think it's seasonally seasonally unadjusted, seasonally unadjusted claims the initial four, claims. yes the four-week moving average in non-seasonally adjusted initial oh. claims okay well, oh doug what do you God. think man that's gotta be sort of cowbell no no we'll give okay. you all right okay there you go. all right all right so, baby Go, so low, explain why did you pick that? So jobless claims. It's my, one of my favorite economic indicators. It comes out every Thursday. It gives you a real time read on what's going on in the in the labor market, uh, and they usually don't send false signals, you know, except around hurricanes and things like that. But you know, when jobless claims are rising, that's you know, layoffs are increasing. That's a recipe for a recession. Uh, I looked at non seasonally adjusted this time of year because Labor Day, they have a hard time seasonally adjusting the data around holidays, so they can be volatile. But the non seasonally adjusted data is trending lower. And since 2000, the lowest four-week moving average was 170,000 and we're at 179. So it's just a testament to the overall strength of the labor market. Say that again. The, what's the, the, the lowest? It was the when? four-week moving average yeah. in non-seasonally adjusted claims since 2000 is 170,000 and okay. we're at 179. Yeah, okay. That, that back to you guys, good news is bad news. Uh, mm -hmm. It's, Fed, Fed's going to look at that and go, oh my gosh, I, right. I can't stand. Yeah. Oh, okay. Okay. That was a good one. That was a good statistic. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. Uh, Chris, you want to go? Uh, sure. Um, $259.3 billion. Uh, this is in the trade report. Yes, it is. Oh, why did you go right there with that, Ryan? Was it the point three that gave it away? I mean... No, it was a billion. When he said billion. Billion, he said billion. Oh, and you know, there are limited releases this week. So right. trade and came out. covers this indicator, it right? It from a release this week? No, oh, no, 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 no. no. They, these guys are so literal about these rules, you know? Uh, yeah, so. All right, Mr. Guarantee. <laughs> okay. Yeah. <laughs> I want to I see the transcript from that. Uh, that <laughs> that is definitely going on Twitter. Yeah. There's, uh, I, think, I think there was a live stream, so you can go back up to their yeah, website. Okay, take a look. Check oh, it out. One. Yeah. Uh, is it exports of a specific thing? It is exports overall. Overall. Real? <laughs> is it nominal exports for the month? Was two hundred fifty-nine yes. billion? Mm -hmm. Oh, okay. Yep. Okay. Which is a record high. That is interesting. On a nominal basis. Though. On a nominal basis. Okay. Meaning yeah. not yeah. accounting for inflation. Correct. Although I think yeah. even yeah. on a real basis, it might. Oh, is that right? either uh, oh that's interesting uh you have any sense of what's driving that so uh two things right so we have um a smaller goods deficit right so as consumers are switching away from goods uh, into services and we have a bit more of a services surplus in terms of um oh, that well that applies to the uh yeah to the exports uh, of um u.s services so that's yeah, a combination of those. 
is uh, leading to a uh, a narrower trade deficit. Well, oh, hold on. So that two hundred fifty nine billion is that what is that exactly? That's nominal exports. I and just confused mer- it. Mer- <laughs> okay, <Right. laughs> two hundred fifty nine point three billion is the exports component of that. Oh, and now you're uh, and our overall trade deficit for the month was seventy point seven billion, which was a, quite a significant narrowing. Mm-hmm. Correct. Yeah. Correct. correct. And trade is going to be a plus for growth, isn't it? It is. Correct. That's that's why I chose this one. Okay. Third quarter, we should actually see some improvement here. Trade was a drag in the first quarter, as Doug mentioned, but it's going to flip. And you're saying the trade balance is now improving because one export growth is stronger. It feels like correct. The world must be waking up a little bit, or maybe it's the Chinese (laughs) reawakening from their slumber earlier. And, and imports are uh, weakening, and that goes to the shift in consumer demand away from goods to services. That's, right. that's what you're saying. That's okay. what I'm saying, yes. Okay. Or okay. trying to say, yes. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, no, I got it. I got it. I got it. Yeah, makes um, sense. Makes sense. It's good. I, you know, this, this picture could shift, though, all right, with the uh, strong dollar, mm-hmm. right? right? Although, so. you would have... You, the dollar's been pretty strong for a while here, right? So it is, but as as it continues to remain strong, assuming it yeah. does, right, then that's going to be even more of a drag going forward, right? The rest of the world might have been able to cope so far, but it gets progressively harder to buy U.S. goods. Yeah, with a strong dollar. Yeah, that's a good one. That's a good one. Doug, you want to go next, or you want me to go next? Uh, you go next. Okay. Here you go. Ready? Eleven point six percent. What's that? 11.6%. And is that a, it's an economic statistic. Yes. And uh, is it uh, related to the labor market in any way? No. No. Oh. Yeah. Generally, I would have thought that. Uh, Yeah. And um, is it a recent, it comes from, is it a recent release of data? Recent release of these data. The most oh okay that's interesting the most recent release of this data, um, is it come from the GDP accounts the NIPA accounts no no, okay. well maybe maybe I because we're struggling a little bit can you tell us what part of the economy you're focused on or would that be giving it away? Uh, it's it's for the household sector. For the household oh, uh, is it growth? housing related? No, no, consumer. Uh, Yes. Consumer. Oh, okay. So this is the growth in consumer credit? No, not credit. Sorry, I thought you said consumer prices. Oh, consumer prices. Oh, oh. No, I said oh prices. Oh, now, oh you know, now you know that. 11.6%. Out so is it, CPI is, it, is it a component of the CPI? Is it, is it a yes. year-over-year growth rate in the, one of the components? More than one of the components. More than one of the components. Oh, it's an aggregate. Uh, 11.6%. What is that, guys? Uh, in um, food's up more than that, isn't it? Food. Uh, I'm trying to think. No, I don't think it's more than that. Uh, mm-hmm. Food prices, Doug. Uh, they're in there. Oh. Uh, in there as well. Okay. What do you, uh, Chris Ryan? What do you That's think? Huh? Wait. It- in there, so. it, yeah. It's one component of the CPI. I, I'm not, it can't be core. It can't be, and it's not the top. It's, it's uh, not top line. It's, food plus energy. <laughs> close. close. Okay. Oh, I, I give up. I yeah, give I up. Get, yeah. It's, what, it's it's the year over year inflation in food, energy, and shelter. That bundle. 
which is oh, wow. oh yes. interesting. <laughs> that's that's the that's the political bundle. Oh, oh. now it makes now, now I'm connecting. Yeah, yeah, that's <laughs> good. And then you got to pay your groceries, and that's why inflation is such a political issue. Eleven point six still in the July report, like what? that's brutal. Yeah, it is brutal. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so you're saying if I add up food, energy, and a cost of shelter, okay. rent, right weights, right weights, it's eleven points. It's up eleven point six percent year over year through July. And so that's me, that's that. I mean, that's that's why this is such a big deal. Yeah. Well, let me ask you from a, a political uh, perspective, the midterm well, election perspective. The I stare at that is like that's half of the CPI, and, the, and it's the one that matters. And inside that is shelter, and shelter is a third by itself. Yeah, right. And shelter is now at five seven, and it has yet to peak. It's Correct. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So once I look at those two things, I I I just think we haven't made a dent in the inflation issue from a making the public happy point of view. Yeah. <laughs> well, let me ask you a question on that. So the midterms are coming up in a couple months, but we're going to get. I guess we'll get a, at least one more CPI. We get the CPI report next. We get two more CPIs. Two. And this one, and Ryan, correct me if I'm wrong, but this CPI report coming out next week for the month of August is going to decline. We're going to see a pretty big decline, obviously. Yeah, mostly energy. Mostly energy. Shelter rent will continue to add, but big decline in energy. Probably the the one we get next month will show a modest increase or a decline, basically flat, probably, given energy prices again and food prices. From the voters' perspective, do you think it's the rate of inflation or do you think it's the change recent change in the rate of inflation? The fact that it's decelerating now, you know, pretty quickly that last few months coming into the election, gas prices are down and, and inflation broadly is kind of rolling over still high, no doubt, very painfully high, but coming rolling over. Does, does, how do you think about that in the context of the outcome for the election? So first, just on, on the way I think about the data, I, outside of, gasoline sort of oil related stuff i we've seen very little change in the inflation i mean so i don't think of it as rolling over for sure yet like we, when we finally got the the market-based pce stuff the the core it, it finally came down a little in the last mm. year, but not like not much two tenths year over year still still quite high so I, I think there's a lot of work to be done in general um voters um, treat prices asymmetrically. They look at the level of gasoline prices. And when they say they want to get rid of gasoline inflation, they want it to go back to two bucks, mm. whatever the level was that they think is appropriate. Mm-hmm. And they look at the rest of them as um, inflation rate. Is it coming down? Like, you know, is it is it going from 8% down to six, down to four? But they look at the level of gasoline. Mm-hmm. And- so right now it's three buck 75, probably. I'm brown. It's still too high. It's still too high. Yeah. Yeah. In their minds. It's down from five, the peak, which is the all-time high in June, but like, still, yeah. you're saying. Yeah. When they go vote, they're going to, that's what they're going to say. It's too high. Yeah. And, th- and this is not a recent final, and this has been, been true in polling for 20 years. Yeah. Interesting. About, about gasoline prices, they have a number that they think it has to get back to. That's what taming uh, gasoline price inflation means to them. Hey, Ryan, if, if oil stays at 85, and I know- that who who the hell knows? I mean, it goes up, down, all around. But say it stays at eighty five. Where is the cost of a gallon of regular unleaded going to settle? Do you do you have a sense of that? We're at three seventy five now, and I, yeah, I look at wholesale gas yeah. prices. And they lead retail by one to two weeks, and they're pointing yep. towards the next two weeks getting down to three 
fifty. Three fifty a gallon. Okay, that sounds which, about right to me. Yeah, it's a little bit lower, but in what were we pre-pandemic? Do you recall? Was it which I guess is? I think it was at least probably a buck lower. Probably. Yeah. Probably I thought it was two fifty. Two fifty three bucks. Okay. To Doug's point. Okay. Those were the good days. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. All right. Very good. Uh, do you want to hear my statistic? Yes. We do. Okay. Uh, I'll give you two numbers. They're uh, related uh, from the same uh, data set. Um, minus 0.3 and positive 15.8. Came out this week? Indeed it did. I, I stick by the rules. You know how, wow. how, uh, how I do that. I'm a very assiduous rule uh, rule compliance person. You know, were these in the ISM report? Pardon me? Were these in the ISM report? They were not in the ISM report. Nope. Is it economic data or is it financial market related? Economic data. Okay. Yep. Not not financial. Yep. And very important in the in the current uh, state of affairs. Uh, top of mind for lots of people. Are, you, are we going oil inventories? No, I wouldn't go that esoteric on right, you. Right. I'm I do you know I'm you know <laughs> fair minded about this whole thing. It, it's related to the BPC uh, conference that Doug and I participated it's housing, on. It's a housing market indicator. It's a housing market indicator, indeed. It is. That's a big hint right there. If you, yeah, I mean, come on. So house prices. House prices. Hey, yes. Schiller, so it's was it's, it month over month and year over year? CoreLogic. Uh, CoreLogic came out with their July. No, year over year is the fifteen. Year. And, uh, and month over month. Yeah, month over month is. Uh, uh, decline, you know, yeah. minus 0. 0.3. This is a, this is a big deal. Uh, you know, July house prices declined. If you look across metro areas, uh, almost a third of metro areas saw their uh, prices uh, decline in the month. You know, obviously year over year, they're still strongly positive because of all the price growth we got at the end of last year and the early part of this year before mortgage rates surged. But now the higher rates are conflating with the high house prices, undermining affordability, and demand is getting crushed, and prices are coming in. Um, of all the big cities, which is experienced? Where, where do you think the weakness is most pronounced? Usually, Chris knows this I, data. I, yeah, amazing. I think, I think yeah, New York was Tampa. the strongest, if I'm not mistaken. What was the strongest? New York. New York was strong. Yeah. Yeah. 1.3. LA? Was LA down? LA. Very yeah. good. There you go. Now you're back in the groove. All yeah, right. LA prices were down. <laughs> DC, Doug, you're home in DC. Uh, it's negative, my friend. You know. Wow, DC yeah. is the least cyclical of the housing markets because, you know, it's a company town and the company's always in business. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's true. And everyone's at remote work, so no one's going in. So yeah, um, Philly prices. You know, of course, that's we live in Philadelphia. Up 0.5. I took some solace in that, but. Good. Yeah, so prices are rolling over. This is the beginning of a, I think, a pretty substantive. Chris, can I ask you on that? Because uh, Doug, Chris is a former Fannie HPI credit risk modeler back in the day. Uh, is it surprising to you how quickly things have turned here on prices, uh, or, or not? I don't think so. I, um, you know, the only reason why so many homeowners were able to purchase a home over the last couple of years, given these double-digit rates uh, of growth rates, was interest rates, right? Low, Very low mortgage rate. So with the mortgage rate rising to 6%, I mean, that demand is getting zapped immediately, right? There's just no option. There's no 
other money. There's no other pocket of uh, funds that they can tap into. So that demand weakens and that's clearly zapping the, uh, the market. Yeah, I like that word zapped. Now we're expecting <laughs> peak to trough price declines nationwide of what, five to 10%? Five to 10. Yeah, five to 10. Versus uh, Q2, yeah. is we call the peak. Yeah, Q2, right, interesting. That sounds right. You know, I mentioned this at that conference. I, I, you know, I've been curious about just how badly the Fed is going to hammer the housing market. And I think it's going to be terrible because, A, the rates are what they are, and they got to keep going up. But yeah. They, they, they went from pumping $30 billion a month in to taking $35 billion a month out uh, through the MBS. And a $65 billion swing is something like a fifth to a quarter of mortgage finance last year. I mean, just that's a big Big you number. Know, you're gonna have to raise rates a lot to attract private capital into the mortgage market from other places, and and so on top of the the policy rise, you're gonna get a, a big impact. It, just to make that clear yeah. to the listener, what you're saying is the the Fed, when it was buying bonds, it was also buying mortgage securities, mortgage backed bonds, thirty five billion a month. Now they're thirty. Now thirty five. Yeah. No. Okay. Now with QT quantitative tightening, we're in reverse, and so you know that's why mortgage spreads over treasuries have gapped out or one of the reasons and why mortgage rates are so high yeah yeah no and the the only the only possible way out maybe is the fed tightens the, those mortgage spreads come back in a little bit because they're very very yeah. wide by historical standards so you don't see the same rise in mortgage rates now going forward that that a lot of all this stuff has already been built in but it's a good point. Okay, let's let's move on. I want to talk about fiscal policy. Oh, sorry. Wait. Before we move on, does anyone yeah. know why they were buying thirty billion? No, no, okay. it didn't make any sense. I, why for so long? Right, that one. Right. Was clearly... no, I, I never understood. That. Okay. Oh, oh, oh! You mean as a policy? Why were they? Why were they doing that? Why were they doing that? I mean, I guess early on in the pandemic, you could argue, yeah, it made sense. You want to keep mortgage rates. Record low isn't too bad. Let people refi, make it easier for people to work through their mortgages. But they kept they kept on doing it for a long time. Yeah, yeah. too long. Yeah, I think and, uh, and yeah, it's a little perplexing because also you know I think they would much prefer to be buying treasuries and mortgage securities, right? Because mortgage securities is some and some have argued that's fiscal policy, right? Because you're trying to affect the housing market directly. It's not yeah. buying treasury bonds, but. Anyway. You want one more good number that came out this yeah. week? Yeah. Yeah. Minus 4%. Four percent. Minus four? Four so percent. So are we back in the game then? You're just oh, no, I'm just, oh, it's round, yeah. round two. Round two. <laughs> if you knew off the top of your head. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. Uh, what is that minus four? Uh, Mainheim index, month over month. Oh, yeah. Oh, used car, cool. used vehicle prices. Yeah. That, mm -hmm. That's it. That's an encouraging thing. Bad news is good news, you know. Correct. So. I mean, the, so. the, the BLS doesn't use that as source data. They use uh, data from JD Power, but it's just an, another indication that you know August inflation should be lower, lower. And and when do new vehicle prices? They haven't rolled over yet, right? They're still, they keep rising. Yeah, when do they roll over? They gotta. I mean, I mean, production is picking up, right? It's yeah, I would say probably in the fourth quarter. Fourth quarter. Yeah. Okay. Hey, we gotta we gotta move on. A lot. Uh, that was a great discussion on the economy, but let's talk about fiscal policy, and maybe. Doug, turning to you, the first thing I'd like to ask is, uh, what do you think of of just what was a, a done in the 
this Congress, uh, you know, since the Biden administration began not almost two years ago, it means an amazing amount of legislation that was passed at the end of the day. And what's your what's your kind of broad assessment of 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 that of the policies that were put into place through this legislation? I'm not a fan uh, of what they've done. I mean, I so if you go through the the list, I mean, the American Rescue Plan, I think, was just an enormous policy error, um, in, both in its timing, its size, and it, the, the composition. I mean, it's, it had nothing to do with the pandemic, so I didn't like that. The bipartisan infrastructure bill that came through um, is, is is a good bill. It's, it's not dramatic in one way or the other, but I, I have no problems with that. Um, I, I didn't like what they did recently at all. Um, they, they passed this CHIPS thing, which is just, this is letting your fear of China turn you into uh, Xi Jr. And, and act like China. It's a terrible idea. Um, so I'm not a fan of that. They passed this PACT Act, which is the veterans benefits, could be up to $600 billion, purely deficit financed. And then this Inflation Reduction Act, which has nothing to do with inflation. And uh, again, I think is is uh, structurally not so great. And so there's a lot, there's a lot of additional deficits, much of it permanent at a time when the economy is is hot and that's not a good idea. And um, it's very different in my view from what we did in 2020, which was appropriate. I mean, I think they did the right thing in 2020, but but not since. Well, let's take, uh, you didn't mention student loans. That wasn't legislation, obviously. That no, was executive that was, order. So I, I assume you, you're not a fan of that either. I know Chris is that's not a fan. around money for young voters, it's terrible. I, I think that's indefensibly bad. Right. So you 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 really don't like it. The the one thing that you did find okay was the infrastructure legislation. Yeah. yeah. Something we've been trying to do for quite some time. Yeah. Yeah. Let me let's go back. Take them one at a time. Uh, on the American Rescue Plan, that uh, I, you know, just to remind the listener, that was the uh, piece of legislation passed early in the Biden administration, March of 2021. I believe it. On a static basis, over ten years, it cost one point nine, maybe close to two trillion dollars, uh, and that was deficit finance. That was, you know, uh, uh, the thinking was that the economy was still struggling with the uh, the, the pandemic. This was b- before vaccines got rolled out. There was a lot of uncertainty about, you know, how effective that would be, and uh, that was that legislation. And you don't like that legislation. Why? Because so, so I have the benefit of actually being on record. I testified in the Senate prior to its passage. And so these are the things I said. Um, there's no evidence we need, we need additional stimulus. We had just done 900 billion in December, but the economy using the real-time indicators was growing at like six to 7%, turned out to be six and a half. That is not a situation where you need to be doing stimulus. So the timing's all wrong. The size is just enormous. Um, CBO's estimate of the the output gap between actual GDP and potential GDP was something on the order of four to 600 billion. You don't need 2 trillion in stimulus to solve that output gap. So it's too big and it inevitably is gonna cause some problem as a result. Um, and the, and the, the composition made no sense. I mean, it had like, you know, multi-employer pension plan bailout, uh, open-ended bailout. It, it had a bunch of things that you just, they were just in there to be in there. And, and so I, I didn't like it at all. It didn't answer any question, and it was all at the wrong time. Well, let me push back a little bit. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, no, no, no. And and that, I, I, that, uh, that's the you know the rap against it uh, for sure. 
Uh, but I think we knew two of the big things. The size was too much and, and it was not needed. We knew in real time. I, 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 I don't view those as like 2020 hindsight. That At the time, I, I, I was wrong. Yeah, now, yeah. The thing I got wrong. Larry Summers said it's going to cause inflation. I give him credit. He's smarter than me. Uh, always has been. I thought it would produce a bunch of asset price bubbles because that's sort of what we'd seen in 2020. You get the stimulus and saving rate goes to a third. You see asset prices. And, and so I, what I was afraid would happen is we would get big um, asset price inflation out of it. The Fed would be forced to move prematurely and, and we'd have a train wreck in, in uh, 2021. I was wrong on that front. Uh, trainer got shifted out yeah the counter to that is well two things one on growth i mean it got us back to full employment pretty quickly you know much more quickly than i probably would have been the case i mean we're only now getting back to employment levels that prevailed you know pre-pandemic the unemployment rate's pretty close to what you would consider to be nehru the employment to population ratio was consistent with full employment so it you know it, it helped growth and get the economy back to full employment. And on the inflation, I, you know, I, I think uh, it added certainly to the inflation back in the spring summer of twenty one because you know it was lifting demand at the same time that vaccines were getting rolled out and the economy was opening. Hard though to connect the inflation today with the ARP in my view because that that feels supply side driven. That's pandemic, supply chains, labor markets, that's Russian invasion, commodity prices, oil, because that inflation is all over the planet. You know, the, you know, it's not just in the United States. It's actually higher in other parts of the world where they're more reliant on Russian uh, energy like Europe. So how do you, uh, how would you respond to that? So um, I, I think, I think there's a lot of truth to that. Like if you look at the 2021 decomposition, right? So 2021 is, is important because it's one of only three years in U.S. economic history where the CPI inflation rose by six percentage points or more. One was 1951, uh, where, believe it or not, the economy was growing at 10.5%, wrapped right around that number. Hmm. And we raised federal spending by 50% to fight the Korean War, demand stimulus in a hot economy, six percentage point jump. Um, then the other was uh, OPEC, 74, uh, global oil prices quadruple overnight big supply shock. 2021's basically those two episodes run together. Um, there are supply components. So if you take quarterly consumer price inflation and you plot the US and, and the Eurozone, the Eurozone basically gets a percentage point higher every quarter. It started at zero at the end of 2021 at 4%. Um, we had the same 1% increase in inflation rate the first quarter. And then in March, ARP passes, and we go right up to, to three percentage points in the second quarter and, and a little more than one and a half in the, in the third. So I think that's the, the demand stimulus hitting in, and it, it drives us much higher than Europe. Um, and since then, I, I think what we've seen is continued impact of the supply chains, you know, which are hard to quantify, but more than anything else, you're getting the classic uh, long lag of, of the Fed staying on the gas pedal all through 2021, completely inexplicably. And, and I mean, I, I will never understand that. It's, I get it that they didn't want to prematurely uh, tighten, but it, even when they acknowledged it wasn't transitory in the, in the fall of 2021, going into winter, they didn't take the foot off the gas. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, they, they, yeah. That, that if there is a place to criticize policies right in that period, what took them so long to kind of revert, uh, start to dial things back? It took yeah. them a while. 
yeah. Um, okay, uh, so that's the the oh, uh, Ryan or Chris, anything you wanted to weigh in on the ARP, the American Rescue Plan? I mean, you know, uh, Doug, not a fan. I'm, you know, like any piece of legislation, I can find blemishes with it. There's some things I wouldn't have done if I were king for the day. But in general, I thought it was pretty good legislation. You guys have a perspective on this, or you're going to stay out of this uh, this this debate? I'm staying out of this one. I'll okay. let Chris jump in. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I'm probably a little bit more on Doug's side. Just not that I could see the case for some stimulus, but uh, it wasn't well targeted in my opinion. So that would. This is, this is Chris's modus operandi. I mean, it, it, it's about the implementation, which I get. You know, it's always it's about the implementation. It's always about the implementation. Yeah. But so, uh, I did a calculation at the time. Right? Suppose you, you thought you really needed to help some people. Let's target uh, people who were unemployed for 20 weeks or more in 2020 and send them checks. You know what that would have cost? No. 10 billion bucks. Oh, is that and, right? And yeah. Then we sent out $300 billion of checks overnight. I mean, it yeah. was incredibly poorly targeted. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that, I mean, to some degree, I, and I, I understand what you're saying and I, I, I hear you, but you know, you're trying to get something done fast you know get it across the finish line there's all these political constraints that you got to keep this person happy which we've seen this person happy that person happy so given the the messiness of the political economy you know no i i, I hear you but yeah I, I didn't think they needed to do something fast i didn't okay urgency was political it wasn't like the cares act where they needed to do things fast i'll defend like the ppp forever i think the monday morning quarterbacking of the paycheck protection program is really unfair yeah i agree with you this whole thing about fraud and i get it but you know <laughs> yeah mean, the the sba got i'm gonna get, try to remember this 32 billion dollars out the door in all of uh 2019 and they got 500 billion dollars out the door in a yeah. month totally agree with you yeah that's it i didn't think that could be done yeah so, and, and you know all of the mob things happen Things happen. Yeah, right. I, mean, I agree with that. I agree with that. All right. So, okay, let's let's skip over the uh, bipartisan uh, infrastructure because I think just broad agreement on that. Uh, and that, by the way, that's only now going to start kicking in, I, I think, uh, in 2023-4. That's when that uh, money starts to flow and we get some infrastructure projects. Although judging by all the construction that's going in out out here, uh, you know, in my neighborhood, it feels like that money's already out there. I don't know, uh, but that may go back to the ARP because the state and local government's got a lot of money out of the ARP that's uh, uh, supporting things. Uh, let's then go to the Chips Act. This is the one one I was a little surprised to hear you say this. Uh, you're not a fan of the Chips Act, and no. the Chips Act is a, an effort to uh, provide subsidies, uh, support to. Uh, mostly the semiconductor industry to bring production here, increase uh, investment in the semiconductor industry. And in the context of, you know, we were the nation, we are very reliant on chips coming out of Asia, particularly Taiwan. And we know how vexed that is, you know, given the relationship between Taiwan, the U.S. and, and uh, China. So why, why, what don't you like about that? So number one, you just start with the Taiwan situation. So Taiwan's, you know, a complicated little place could be invaded. Um, uh, if you're a, a chip manufacturer, you know that. You don't want to be reliant on that. That's that's a terrible business model. So you're going to diversify the sourcing of your chips regardless. You're going to build fabs around like Germany and 
other places. So we, we didn't need the federal government to hand them money to do that. That was in their interest to do it. And, you know, Apple has $700 billion in cash on their balance sheet. Why are we handing them $52 billion of taxpayer money? Build your own damn plan. Um, it doesn't make any sense to me. Um, there was at the beginning, a, a, a really a kernel of the, of, a, of the truth, which was there are some defense related chips that should be manufactured in the US by domestic manufacturers and they weren't. And, and I can see spending money to make sure that happened. But after that, it all just turned into, you know, the, these, and I talked to some of these, these manufacturers and they were just, they were just playing one government off against the other, trying to get the biggest subsidies they could. It's, it was no deeper than that. And well, it was particularly shameless. And so, you know, I'm not a fan of that. And yeah. there's a pile of money in there for like um, research. And that could turn out to be valuable. I, I don't know. But again, they, the implementation is to make it go through these regional um, innovation centers. And if, if history is any guide, there's no innovation in the regional center, period. That's that we've tried that before. Well, I think the, the 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 logic or the argument is, yeah, I, I hear you about market forces working, but they're not going to work fast enough. We got a problem here. You know, China has blockaded Taiwan, and they can do that again if they we don't get chips from so, you know, TSMC. We got a problem, a big problem, as we could see in the supply chains and, and vehicle but, markets. We need production fast, right. and, and and even with the Chips Act. It's not fast, right? I mean, but, to put up a fat plant takes time, you know, several it years. It doesn't matter who writes the check. It takes the same amount of time to, to build it. So that doesn't make yeah. any sense at all. They but but just to, to build, build the things. You're saying, but this it definitely accelerates the process, don't you think? No. I mean, no? no? You think these guys would have done it as fast if, without the incentive? They was going to build their plant regardless. And they Yeah, but, but they, when? They held up the government to, to pay for it. Yeah. Well, so kind of sort of... Kind of sort of the argument against in building of government using government money for for building stadiums and attracting businesses to your state or you know all that kind of stuff the same 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 kind of argument same it, kind of principle this is really in the end just industrial policy out of fear of, of china and i don't think it's it's smart i really don't right okay but china's got a big problem because they're moving more and more towards central planning they're going to fail can I ask, and I don't know the answer to the question, You maybe you do, was there Republican support for the CHIPS Act? Was that, there was Republican support. Yeah, that got through, okay. Um, that was a, a Todd Young from Indiana bill called Endless Frontiers. That was the, the sort of initial version of that. And it wandered around for about 18 months. Oh, is that right? Yeah. Okay. All right, Lynn, let's, let's fast forward now to the Inflation Reduction Act, which uh, I totally agree it's not about inflation reduction, <laughs> certainly not in the near term. No. But what don't you like about it? Because it addresses, I don't know your perspectives on climate change, but it definitely addresses climate change. Again, abstracting from implementation issues. I know, Chris, you don't uh, like whatever. I, I, I can't abstract from them because, I mean, yeah. oh, okay. This, I mean, this, I think climate's a real issue. I mean, this goes back. And, okay. And, um, and, this is neither enough money to genuinely deal it in a significant way. And they, they, they basically handcuffed the use of the money through these domestic content restrictions and, and all sorts of things that make it like the EV credit. There's one car out there that the average American can buy with that credit. And, and so they're, they're going to not make much progress on the climate at great expense. And that just makes me nuts. Um, so okay, so you, it's not like you don't like the 
principle. You just don't like no. the, the the specific policies that right. are getting to getting there. And, and, um, so, for example, on the tax side, they have this book income minimum tax, which is just a yeah. terrible idea. Um, we did this in, in 86 and we got rid of it in three years because it, it's a terrible idea. And now we're going to do it again and get rid of it in three years because it's a terrible idea. Um, You're not against the it raises revenue. So it's according to CBO, it's paid raise for. The rate. I mean, I yeah. mean, do something sensible. But they couldn't get that done going back to political economy. I know. And, and you got to pay for it. Here they paid for it, right? I'm just saying, I'm yeah. not just like the, the policy yeah. of merits, and this is bad tax policy. Yeah. It's, and it's bad for financial um, reporting. This gives you an incentive to distort your financial reporting for tax reasons. We, we work hard enough to get people to, to uh, display their financial results in a clean fashion. Why are we going to make it harder? Yeah, and you know, that's the history of the tax code, Doug, right? You know better than I. I mean, the reason why we have all these loopholes is because they, you know, they, we had a 90% marginal rate you know, back in 1950, and they couldn't lower the marginal rate politically. So they gave everyone these loopholes, including the carried interest deduction, right? Or oh, exclusion. I hear you. I have no problem with that. We yeah. convert it to the tax code. Don't bleed it over in to FASB's territory. They just handed the tax base to FASB. That's oh, FASB will I, figure it out. They, oh, oh, come on. These are accountants. Come on. Bad idea. No, I'm like, I'm, bad idea. <laughs> I was going to ask you, oh, 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 on the... Uh, funding of the IRS uh, to go out and, and I have no problem with that. No problem with that. Okay. I, I, yeah. I think that that's a political firestorm for the sake of having a political firestorm. Yeah. You know, substantively, the thing has been, you know, it's, it's had about a 25% reduction in real funding over the past decade. You know, directionally, I don't know if 80 billion is the right number, but directionally, it's the, it's the thing to do. Yeah. I just want to throw one thing out. One thing out, and it, this is in my mind's eye, so I might not have it exactly right. But you know, if you look at the fiscal impact of all this legislation we just discussed over the next ten years, obviously it adds to the, the government's deficits. Yep. If you look over the next twenty, if everything remains in place for twenty years, goodness knows that probably won't happen. But just for sake of you know discussion, it actually I think pays for itself because in the second decade, the uh, tax increases, the book income tax you referred to, the IRS, uh, that kind of thing, raises a lot of revenue to pay, that ultimately pays for the American Rescue Plan. I'm live 20 years. Okay. I knew you were going to say that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, got in, it. in general, if we want to just sort of uh, place bets, you can get the second 10 years every time. I'll, uh, good luck. Got it. <laughs> Got it. Hey, and by the way, I, I, you know, we've done some research on um, the climate provisions in the IRA and the impact that has on CO2 emissions and ultimately macroeconomic activity. And again, a boatload of uncertainty. You got to look out pretty far, but it actually does move the dial a bit, you know, a re in a reasonable direction, you know, if it, if it works out uh, reasonably so. Uh, okay. We're running out of time, but I, I know there's a, uh, there's one policy that we, I, I think we actually really agree on, and so I want to end on this, uh, and, and that is uh, immigration policy. I, I, I know you think I was going to say GSE policy, uh, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. We've always been in lockstep on that. Oh yeah, we've always been in lockstep on. Oh, but uh, let, no one else cares except you and me and maybe Chris. So let's <laughs> table that one for. We'll bring you back for another day. But on immigration policy, I know you've done some fantastic work in this area. Do you want to just give us a sense of things? Sure. I mean, I mean, and I'm gonna I'm gonna go on mute because these these you know, my guys are losing it over here. This, this is really not complicated. Um, uh, for a long time, and it's gotten worse recently. The the native born population in the U.S. 
has had sub-replacement fertility. We don't have enough babies to, to even stay the same population size. So in the absence of immigration, we're Japan. We get old, we get small, we become less influential. Um, the flip side of that is that by choosing your immigration policy, you get to dictate the future growth and the size and composition of labor force and the vitality of, of economic growth. And that's just an enormous opportunity. It's probably the biggest lever we have in terms of economic policy. And I just want the U.S. to, to, to do that, to think hard about economic considerations when uh, permanently awarding visas. Right now we award about 5% of permanent visas on economic criteria. I just want that to go north. I think it'd be a good idea. Um, and without trying very hard, immigrants have, at, at recruiting, I, um, immigrants have provided an enormous amount of economic vitality. And so if we actually tried, I, I can't imagine uh, what, what could happen. And so, you know, there are a lot of systems out there, like Canada has one, a system that sort of awards points for different um, uh, attributes. So I think of that as a, a resume reading uh, system, right? You sort of get a resume, speaks English, has a PhD, five years of uh, labor force experience, point, 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 come on in. Um, that, that's part of it. I think we need to do that. But I also want to have an employer-based uh, temporary visa so that people who, who you know, we all know someone who didn't do that great in high school or college or didn't even finish and, and is a fantastic employee. I want those people to find a place. If they can come, have an employer employ them, stay employed, and succeed in the in the way that we judge success in the US, success in the market, stay in the, in the labor market, then they get points to get a permanent visa. So something like that, I think, would would be an enormous step forward for the US. And it's it's quite frustrating to see us year after year sort of not take advantage of that opportunity. Do you think we're going to get a political window at some point? I mean, it feels like that window is pretty tightly shut at the moment, but you know, oh. given the tight labor market and the prospects for that to remain the case forever, given demographics, the aging of the population and the lack of immigration, do you think that's going to change and we are going to get a window where we get yeah. some rational reform here? I think you could get some piecemeal pieces of that um, right now in like farm worker um, immigration and, you know, on, on a bipartisan basis, people know that the, basically the, the farm workers of America are largely illegal immigrants. We need to fix that. And, and that's an opening to sort of think more broadly about getting the system, uh, cleaned up. We're also doing some work on, you know, on the literally millions of people who are in the visa backlog. Um, and if you, that's one where, where you really can't just throw money at the problem. Get more people to process visas, get them in, and watch what happens to the economy. That'd be a great idea. So, yeah, I mean, I agree. I don't think there's any better way to lift long-term economic growth, yeah. both in terms of labor, but also in terms of productivity, as you pointed out, because these because immigrants are risk takers by definition. You know, you don't pick up and leave one country, come to another without being a risk taker. And right. Goodness knows we need that. Uh, then. Um, you know, more and uh, sounder immigration. I mean, we, need, we definitely need that. Hopefully we find our way to, to do that at some point. But Doug, hey, uh, you're the best. Thanks. I really want to... Yeah. You know, I learned a lot about hot dogs in Chicago. I didn't know that. I didn't know that, that either. Was a thing. I didn't. Yeah. And I'm going to get a bad bottle of wine out of it. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah. And, and maybe a cowbell. Oh, I meant to ask you, you were telling us the story about the cowbell. You already have a cowbell. I have a cowbell because my assistant's an alum of, of Mississippi State. And um, I didn't know, but they, they all carry cowbells to their games. 
And this is to honor some historic moment when the cows invaded the football field. And so they, <laughs> they have cowbells. And cowbells are really loud. Like, you shouldn't ring one in the office. It, it, they, they're loud. You do. We do, uh, we do <laughs> regularly. Yep. Regularly. We all have our, we have, we've got, uh, apparently they've got, if you go to Europe, every mountain or every hill has its own cowbell. Really? You know, different, yeah, I didn't know that either. Yeah, there you go. You learned two things in this podcast. <laughs> yeah. Very good. Well, thanks again, and uh, well, hopefully we'll have you soon, and best of luck with uh, all your endeavors. So thank you, Doug. Thanks for having me. Pleasure. Hey, and to the listener, uh, this is our 75th episode, guys. 75th. Wow. We have uh, surpassed a million downloads in that time, a little over a year, and uh, I think people like this. I mean, I certainly enjoy it, and it's fun to have people like Doug on and uh, give them a hard time. Uh, yeah, I was going to ask you, how many of those downloads are you? Oh, the dogs. He's trained the yeah. dogs. <laughs> yeah, that's right. You want that bone, you gotta keep pressing. You gotta be keep pressing. <laughs> exactly. Uh but I think to the listener though, we um we appreciate your feedback. So if you've got any topics you'd like us to address, let us know. And questions. Uh you know, what uh, different podcasts we've been taking listener questions and we want to get back to that. So if you've got any specific questions about this podcast or any others you know, fire away. And with that, um, we're, we're going to call it a podcast. Uh, talk to you next week. Take care now. <laughs>